Sean, it's Christmas Eve. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you too, Alyssa. I'm glad Japan's borders are open just in time for Santa to visit. Yeah, I ho ho hope he's got the right visa. (laughs) Seriously, though. But, as you know, the real holidays in Japan actually happen around the new year, and I can't wait to finally get a break and for this to be over. Well, I hope you're not talking about this podcast. No, of course not. I'm talking about COVID-19. I think for the first time this year, it feels like some kind of end is in sight. Mm. Overseas, people are already starting to get vaccinated. And it's nice to think there'll be a time when I can pop to the convenience store without masking up and disinfecting myself three times. You know, I may keep the mask. Yeah? Yeah, I can fall asleep with my mouth open on the train and (laughs) not get embarrassed. Right. Or mouth the words to songs as you walk down the street. Yeah, this mask ain't going anywhere. Mm Mm-mm. I'm Japan Times Culture Editor, Alyssa Smith. And I'm Features Editor, Sean McKenna. And this is Recultured, a four-part look at the effects of COVID-19 on Japanese pop culture. In this episode, anime provides a note of optimism for an entertainment industry that is ready for better days. So sit down, fill your glass half full, and relive some of the country's more significant pop culture moments with us. Rebuild. So I'd like to wrap up this series by focusing on a couple of hopeful stories. Okay. Stories that show the ability of humanity to rebuild in the aftermath of a crisis and convey the idea that COVID-19 hasn't diminished our desire for art, culture, and entertainment. Sounds good. What are we closing out with? Anime. Hey. Anime is as Japanese as sushi. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been one of the most reliable tools in Japan's soft power arsenal, connecting with kids from around the globe. You know, my own entry point into anime was the movie Akira, which I think I first saw in maybe 1993. Yeah, that's a classic. But I'm more of a Sailor Moon girl. Ah, okay. If we're talking about films, though, it's all about Studio Ghibli. What's your favorite Ghibli film? It's really hard to choose, but I think My Neighbor Totoro. Okay, why? Why? Because he's so cute and squishy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you brought up Ghibli because I think they've historically been viewed as a bit of a global standard for Japanese anime. Mm -hmm. When Spirited Away, the highest grossing film in Japanese history, Mm -hmm. won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature in 2003, it was a watershed moment for the animation industry here. And since then, global interest in anime has absolutely boomed, especially throughout the 2010s. You could make a strong case that anime has never been more popular and it's managed to permeate all sorts of other culture. Hmm, like, like what? Well, like the music of rappers such as Lil Uzi Vert. He landed on the Billboard Hot 100 earlier this year with his song Sasuke, which is named after a character in Naruto. Um, but much bigger than that, uh, in late 2019, we saw all these stories of how shows like Neon Genesis Evangelion were being used as inspiration by protesters in Hong Kong. Or even how the theme song to Hamtaro became a rallying cry for protesters in Thailand. Yeah, anime has become a real global phenomenon. And I think what's really helped is its increased availability on streaming platforms. This year in particular, we've seen Netflix push forward with a bunch of new shows. They're currently developing 16 new ones, capitalizing on the interest in anime many people developed during the pandemic. And because they're Netflix productions, they'll be distributed worldwide. Mm Mm-hmm. But let's bring it back home and talk about a couple of the standout anime from this year in Japan. 
And to do that, we need to first jump back to February 2016, when one of the most important debuts of the 2010s launched in the manga magazine Weekly Shonen Jump. Its name was Kimetsu no Yaiba, or as we've come to know it in English, Demon Slayer. Matt Schley writes about anime for the Japan Times and takes it from here. So the manga kicked off in 2016. It's about a young boy in Taisho era Japan. The Taisho era is 1912 to 1926. Um, it's a really interesting period in Japanese history. So it's about a young boy in the Taisho period who goes home one day to find that his family has been slaughtered by demons. The only one to have survived the attack is his younger sister, who has been transformed into a demon, but her demonhood doesn't seem to be that bad yet. His quest in life becomes to hunt down the demons that transformed his sister and hopefully find a way to return her her humanity. So manga refers to the stuff that appears in comic form, while anime is how Japan refers to its animation. And the Demon Slayer manga did well. The magazine it was published in, Weekly Shonen Jump, is responsible for other hits, such as Dragon Ball, Naruto, and One Piece. So Demon Slayer launched with a certain level of prestige. And then in April 2019, the company UFO Table debuted a TV version of the manga. And from what I remember of our culture content at the time, the series had a big impact, transforming Demon Slayer from a niche manga to a really popular cartoon and inspiring a much larger following than it ever had before. Anime News Network Tokyo correspondent Kim Morrissey has a theory as to why the TV series did so well. So if you ask me, my opinion is that it had some really amazing animation in certain parts. And I attribute that to the production studio, UFO Table. Like, they make some really incredible anime. Now, as for the question of why Demon Slayer, but not anything else that UFO Table has previously done, I would say that it's that UFO Table previously had taken on projects that were kind of limited in scope in terms of the potential target audience. Demon Slayer was the first time that UFO Table really took on a project that could reach the masses. The success of the show also helped push people back toward the original manga, causing that to explode in popularity as well. Here's Matt again. It did phenomenally well. Um, So throughout 2019 and 2020, on a lot of the charts that measure these kind of things, the best-selling manga of the year or of of the week, as it were, Literally, the top 15 list, would 14 of the entries on the list would be Demon Slayer from volume 1 to however many volumes had been out at the time. I believe the final volume is coming out later this year, which is volume 23. Okay, so that's the origin story for Demon Slayer. Remember it because we'll be coming back to it later. But now let's jump to 2019 so I can introduce the other part of this story. It's July in Kyoto. Meaning, the rainy season is giving way to the oppressive humidity of a Japanese summer. Exactly. And the morning of the 18th is a typical one for staff at Kyoto Animation, a celebrated animation studio responsible for globally loved titles such as Lucky Star and K-On. Just after 10.30 a.m., a man walked into the company's Studio One, a building primarily used by animators. He was carrying about 40 liters of gasoline, which he ignited at the entrance, starting a massive fire. 70 workers were in the building when the attack started. Mm. The news coverage was awful to watch. 
A total of 36 people died at the studio, with 34 more injured. It was one of the deadliest attacks in Japan since World War II, and it shocked people around the world. Fans of the studio helped raise about $30 million to help the survivors and the families of those who were killed. It was hardly on anyone's mind straight after the incident, but you know, Kyoto Animation is a working anime studio, and the attack threw its release schedule into chaos. The company carried on, but they said they would be moving at a much slower pace after that, meaning features already on the books had to be postponed. One of those affected was a full-length feature for the anime series Violet Evergarden, a story all about trauma and finding your way in the world. Matt and Kim take up the story from here. It's kind of set in this alternate, vaguely European steampunk world. There's been a big war between these two countries. The main character, Violet Evergarden, is a young woman who was kind of raised as a kind of a killing machine. She, in the years after the war, is employed as a auto-memory doll, which is kind of their fancy word for a typist. People dictate what to write, and she writes the letters. She was kind of so traumatized and so shaped by war that she finds it hard to understand human emotions. So she visits a lot of people, and kind of through writing letters for them, she gradually becomes more empathetic and learns what it is to love and and things like that. The studio was determined to finish the film of Violet Evergarden, but because of the attack, the original January 2020 release date was pushed back to spring 2020. And then the COVID-19 pandemic pushed it back even further. Between the attack and the pandemic, I've got to imagine the studio was pretty desperate to get it out at this point. Hmm. Though I know they're understandably tight-lipped about talking about anything related to the arson attack. Yeah, it's been an incredibly difficult time for them, even with all the support they've had from their fans. We'll get to what happened to Kyoto Animation and Violet Evergarden later in this episode, but shifting back to Demon Slayer for a moment, Alyssa, would you say you watched more or less TV shows during the state of emergency? Definitely more. Yeah, I mean, as we discussed back in episode two, during the pandemic, people around the world have been logging on to streaming services in droves. And because of this rush of people looking for things to watch... Demon Slayer, the anime, enjoyed another huge boost in attention. With people stuck at home, a lot of them binged the 26 episodes from one of the several different streaming services hosting it. Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Japan all had it at different times. Here's Matt again. So I've talked to a few analysts who point to the pandemic as boosting Demon Slayer even further than it was. It was already pretty popular before the pandemic, but it had the advantage of being on a decent number of streaming services, which a lot of people in Japan were either kind of discovering for the first time because of the pandemic, or at least spending a lot more time on because of the pandemic. Demon Slayer was already kind of in the ether anyway, and I think a lot of people sitting down on the the couch during the stay-at-home period found it that way as well. This all sets the stage for fall and two huge film releases that would show our capability to rebuild and how much people were really craving entertainment. More after the break. Hey, Lisa, you're something of a gourmand, aren't you? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're in the mood for some really good food? I go to one of Tokyo's top restaurants. 
Hmm, that's kind of hard to do right now. What if you don't want to leave the comfort of your own home? Oh, well, then I don't know. Well, then check out Foodie, Tokyo's first gourmet restaurant delivery service. Oh? Foodie delivers from a diverse selection of Tokyo's finest restaurants, most of which have never been available for delivery before. Wow, really? What can I get on Foodie? You can get all sorts, and the list is growing. Some of the favorites include restaurants like Nobu Tokyo and the Oak Door Steakhouse. But it's not just what you can get, it's also where you can get it. Foodie delivers to your home, hotel, office, business party, and even picnics in the park. Picnics in the park? Picnics in the park. I know you like picnics in the park. I do. So this festive season, go to www.food-e.jp for the best fine dining delivery options in Tokyo. Premium dining. Now at your fingertips and available exclusively at www.food-e.jp. The link is in the episode notes. Sean, try to guess what I'm holding in my hand. I don't know. Okay, here's a hint. Um, almost everyone in Japan uses it. A cell phone? No. Uh, it's used for official documents. A pen? <laughs> it's, it's made of wood sometimes. A wooden pen. <laughs> it's a honko, it's isn't a it? It's a honko. <laughs> okay. Okay, so this is a honko. I guess it's kind of a wooden pen. This is a thing Japanese people use to stamp documents with their name, kind of like a signature. And the reason I have this out is because I want to say goodbye to it. What? Yeah. So, watch as I dramatically toss it. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm going to throw it now. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I'm ready to throw it. Okay. Oh, touch the mic. You also banged the mic. Okay. Yeah. So for the listener at home, uh, Alyssa has dramatically tossed aside her honko onto the floor. I'm not sure why she's doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to set us up to talk about the tradition of honko. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for all this. So there were several stories during the stay-at-home period where despite people being asked to work from home, many still had to go into the office to stamp official documents with their honko, which... Defeats the entire purpose of working from home. Mm-hmm, exactly. But this fall, under new Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga, the government has really upped its efforts to get people to phase out the hanko and instead use e-signatures and things like that to sign off on documents. Next stop, the singularity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people like to think that Japan is in a perpetual state of sameness. But as we've discussed in the series, change does happen. It's just that it usually happens really slowly. But why I brought up the story is that COVID-19 has forced Japan into this period of more rapid change. That includes getting rid of the hanko, a custom that's been around for millennia, but also the huge changes we've seen in the world of pop culture. While some of these changes may be temporary, others will likely stick around post-pandemic. Right. Well, one of the changes we've heard about that's likely to stay longer term is how musicians and creators are moving away from old entertainment structures. Here's Lauren Rose Coker from ticketing platform Zyko. I think that just like in the U.S., for example, there is less and less of a reason to sign with a major record label if you're a musician. You know, there's less and less of a reason to hand over your masters when instead you could do a distribution deal or something really short-term licensing. Um, and also very, very soon there's going to be it's going to be very, very clear that there's less and less of a reason to sign with these large Japanese management companies. 
And there's already quite the exodus happening, like both in the public view and then like behind the scenes. This year, we've seen more and more musicians leave major agencies to pursue their own paths forward, ranging from smaller acts such as Torena to bigger names such as Moo Moo, who left powerhouse label Avex late in 2020 to go independent. Then there's the world of Johnny's stars, which we talked about in episode two. For a long time, Johnny's was seen as your golden ticket if you wanted to be a mainstream male talent. But even here, we've seen more of their stars leave to go out on their own, starting with members of the group SMOP a few years back, and most recently, Tomohiso Yamashita exiting to build his career in markets outside of Japan. Johnny and Associates' grip on the entertainment world has been loosened both by the passing of its founder, Johnny Kitagawa, in 2019, and also as the internet has provided a viable alternative to the Johnny's model, to the point where Johnny's themselves are even starting to embrace it. Mm. A big part of this is that entertainers and artists are realizing more and more that they can use digital platforms like YouTube, Instagram, or TikTok to reach people directly. And not just people in Japan, which was the traditional focus. Yeah, and the pandemic has sped up the adoption of these platforms, both on the artist and the consumer side. Back in the state of emergency, with live events and TV filmings off the table, many media personalities realized they could just turn to social media and do just as good a job connecting with people on their own without management taking a huge cut of their earnings. Just like the Hanko, the management-led model is slowly being left behind. This is something that Lauren also reflected on. I think there's just like some unrest kind of kind of happening. What you hear about that is a lot of that is because people are talking to famous YouTubers. And some of these famous Japanese YouTubers who make quite a bit of money are saying, my contract with my manager, like I give my manager 10, 20% and that's it. And then the rest of the revenue I take home where your typical Japanese entertainment management contract is like the other way where the management agency takes everything and then gives the, the artist a salary. And so there's like this huge demand for greater transparency and control that's going to be coming from like Japanese entertainers themselves. A perfect example of the shift we're talking about is Fuachang. She the one with the rainbow colored outfits and clips in her hair? Yep, exactly. And one of 2020's biggest breakout stars. Fuachang, whose real name is Haruka Fua, originally worked under Watanabe Entertainment. But she actually ditched the agency a few years ago, which normally would have meant an end to her hopes in the world of show business. I sense a twist coming. Yep. She went independent and rebuilt her career by launching her own YouTube channels, where she embraced her own chaotic neutral energy to create videos where she got up to all kinds of mischief. And it worked. Her videos attracted millions of views online and were particularly popular over the pandemic. So when TV shows started filming again, she became a regular. So I guess Fuachan can serve as an example going forward, mm-hmm. as others in the world of pop culture begin to rebuild and reimagine their careers post-pandemic. And as we saw with Nijiu last episode, another avenue for success is in connecting with people outside of Japan. The first take, which started at the end of 2019, but really took off this year, captures performances from J-pop artists in one take. They upload the videos to YouTube without region locks and with subtitles in multiple languages. With more people moving online during the pandemic, the channel now has almost 3 million subscribers, and it's easy to imagine other musicians copying the First Takes model going forward. And do we dare get into the world of virtual YouTubers? Ooh, let's do it. 
So virtual YouTubers are also known as VTubers, and they're another Japanese idea that skyrocketed in popularity while everyone was stuck at home. YouTube actually just reported that VTubers were collectively getting 1.5 billion views per month in October 2020. Jeez. A huge increase from the start of the year. Hannah Lee from Arama Japan explains what a VTuber actually is. So a virtual YouTuber is basically a streamer with a virtual avatar on top of them. And it could be any sort of avatar. I actually think there's a couple of very, very large ones now. In the West, but the term VTuber is really specific to groups like, well, nowadays it refers very specifically to groups like Hololive or Niji Sanji. The biggest VTuber talent agency going is called Hololive, which is owned by a company called CoverCorp. They primarily manage Japanese VTubers like Kiryu Koko, a memeverse talent who has earned a ton of money from YouTube's Super Chat feature, which is kind of like a donation system done in the middle of a live stream.、Mm. CoverCorp has made growing its international reach a priority this year, expanding to China and Indonesia, and then to the English speaking world with Hololive English, which features five talents who have seen immediate success online. Including. The shark themed English language VTuber called Gargura, who's amassed over 1.7 million subscribers on YouTube since launching in July this year. Huh, first baby shark, now this. <laughs> <Yeah> . One <laughs> of the other big changes coming out of this year is a whole new set of people who are getting involved in the creation of Japanese pop culture. We talked about how much attention Netflix is giving to its anime development, making inroads into the market here. And as if reacting to Netflix's presence, in early December, Sony announced it would be buying Crunchyroll, an anime streaming platform popular in the West. You know, this really underlines the point of how big anime has become.、Mm-hmm. And another aspect of this is that a large number of non Japanese people are finding themselves welcomed into the industry and they bring fresh ideas to this world. Matt told us a bit more about that. We've got Japanese studios. Teaming up with a lot more foreign talent.、Um, there are some really, really, some of the most talented animators working on、um, quote unquote pure Japanese animation right now are outside the country or they're from outside the country. So, people from around the world who are interested in, in working in the Japanese animation industry are now finding themselves more welcomed. Japanese entertainment and pop culture in general used to be so protective of what it put out. Who it worked with and delivered to. But it's looking like that won't be easy to maintain going forward. The old model is on its way out, and we're seeing it being rebuilt into something new.、Mm-hmm. COVID 19 has served as a very loud wake up call to Japanese pop culture that we now live in a digital age. And over this past year, many of the biggest hits have reinforced all the same ideas that independence, digital reach, and an outward looking mindset are key to success. More after the break. So, when I talk to friends and family back home in Canada, I'm surprised at how many people actually miss the experience of going to a movie theater. Yeah, it's one of those things you take for granted until it's gone. Staying home and downloading something is fine, but that shared sense of excitement when you see a big release on opening weekend, 
It just can't be replicated in your living room. Even if you tried to recreate it, like the police would be over with a noise complaint in seconds. I know, right? <laughs> so in the West, I think most people were hoping Tenet would bring people back to the theater. But here, the longing for the silver screen fueled a fascination with Demon Slayer, the movie. The film premiered in theaters on October 16th, at a point in the pandemic where case numbers were low enough that theaters in Japan could start filling every seat with people again, as long as they wore masks. And they didn't eat anything. Mm. I went to the Toho Cinemas in Shinjuku to see what the atmosphere was like, and the snack bar was totally shut down, and everyone had a mask on. Hmm. But the Demon Slayer film? It had over a dozen showings that afternoon. Yeah, the film was huge. Demon Slayer is just shy of becoming the highest-grossing film in Japanese movie history, just needing to beat out Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away to claim the top spot. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty surprised by how well that film has done, to be honest. Yeah, even though the manga and the TV series of Demon Slayer had a loyal fan base, I think the success of the film came as a surprise to a lot of people. But to Matt Schley, its success can be explained by several factors, all coming together at once. The film happened to come out right when um, people were feeling pretty good about going back to the theater. There's also not a lot of competition for the film in theaters right now. So if you're going to go see a movie, it's pretty much going to be Demon Slayer. I think another factor that's led to it doing well is the fact that it's not a, what you, people often refer to as a side quill, right? This is a direct continuation of where the anime series left off. So... If you want to see what happens after the final episode, you got to go see the film. It's just a just kind of the perfect storm. A perfect storm that shows just how much people want to see movies in the cinema. I think that's kind of encouraging. Yeah, which leads me back to the other film I started this episode out with. Violet Evergarden, the movie, came out a little before Demon Slayer on September 18th. And while it didn't break any records, it performed well. It has grossed over 2 billion yen and has spent most of its theatrical run in the top 10 at the Japanese box office. Yeah, that's amazing. In that film's case, though, I don't think that the bottom line was really what mattered. The very fact that it was able to arrive in theaters at all following the attack on Kyoto Animation was a ray of light for anime fans across the world. Journalist Kim Morrissey was one of many fans touched by the film's success. So when you look at the credits of this new film, you actually see quite a lot of names of the people who worked in it who have already departed. Like, all of their names are listed, and it's it, 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 it was one of those things that, like, put a tear to my eye as I was watching the credits of the film. Like, it, the, the film itself was already very heavily, like, sentimental and touching, and then seeing the credits rolls was, like, a whole new level of reality to it. To me, the journey of Violet Evergarden is a story of hope that shows the potential for damaged things to be rebuilt, literally from the ashes. It's a story I think a lot of people can take inspiration from in the current moment. And that story of hope is where I wish we could end this series. We've really gone through it this year. Yeah, we saw COVID-19 arrive in Japan, and life as we know it collapse, reflected by the sudden end of Terrace House. Then that collapse led us to stay indoors, where a lot of us built our own islands on Animal Crossing. Right, and we got tired of those lonely islands and released our pent-up energy with a blast of pop pleasure, courtesy of Nijiu. Which I think put us in the right frame of mind to celebrate the triumphs of Demon Slayer and Violet Evergarden. Yep. And Alyssa, if we were to press pause on pop culture right there, what would your takeaway from the pandemic be? 
So I think if I look at the entertainment world, I'm really encouraged by the artists who have found a new type of independence during the pandemic, who have started to move away from the older models in the industry. Mm. This has been a long time coming. And this year, artists have bet on themselves and managed to connect with so many people. At the same time, I think I've got a greater sense of appreciation for the in-person experience now. All those times I'd passed on a concert or going to a club with friends, I think I value those opportunities more. Yeah. I might even try to get tickets to see Niju's first concert, whenever that may be. (laughs) Well, I hope that makes you happy. I hope so, too. But I agree. It's like the fact that because I live in Japan, I may not take the time to see and experience what this country has to offer. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Now, I think I've seen enough of my neighborhood for a while. Maybe I'll move. Oh. What about you, Sean? What's your takeaway? And you can't have independence. That's mine. Okay. Shucks. (laughs) Um, Well, I think my takeaway for 2020 would be how much entertainers took to the internet and social media platforms, which I guess helped enable that independence you were talking about. Okay. I'll allow it. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, The fact that so many people, both like consumers and artists, have moved to streaming services and other platforms that can be accessed around the world will have pretty long-lasting impacts on Japan's pop culture. Mm -hmm. The internet used to be this big phobia for so many artists. I can still remember a time when Yellow Magic Orchestra wasn't on Spotify. This is one of Japan's biggest contributions to the art of music, and you couldn't listen to their back catalog unless you spent a ton of cash on individual CDs. Then, during the pandemic, I checked and they'd finally uploaded it all. Yeah, it makes sense. People aren't going to a record store to buy a YMO album during a pandemic. But they may just dive into it online. But here's the thing, Sean. Okay. The pandemic isn't over yet. Mm, That's right. And that's why at the top I said I wish we could have ended it with Violet Evergarden and Demon Slayer. But as we've been recording this, new cases of COVID-19 have spiked again in Japan, setting records across the country. And we still have to get through what looks to be a very long winter. Even though vaccines have started to be distributed in other parts of the world, it'll still be several months before we return to any kind of situation where the worry of getting sick really starts to dissipate. Mm -hmm. It's like seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but still having to run a marathon to get there. Yeah. The situation is still in flux, sure. But I think we have reached the point of a truly garbage year where we can start to let in some hope. Absolutely. And although the foundations for whatever comes next haven't truly settled, I hope this series has highlighted some of the more positive changes this pandemic has brought and showed how pop culture in Japan has started to rebuild itself amid this crisis. And that's where we'll end our show. Thank you for joining me on this journey through Japanese pop culture in 2020, Eliza. Yeah, thank you, Sean. And thank you at home for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. That's it for Recultured. Thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays and all the best in the new year. Regular episodes of Deep Dive will return in 2021. Thanks to all those who took the time to interview for this episode. Hannah Lee, Kim Morrissey, Lauren Rose Coker, and Matt Schley. And thanks again to all those who interviewed over the past three episodes. This episode was written and edited by Patrick St. Michel and Oscar Boyd, with extra help from our intern, Tadasu Takashi. It was produced by Oscar Boyd. Recultured is hosted by Sean McKenna and me, Alyssa I. Smith. Our theme music was by 4L, 
And this episode was recorded at the Temple University Japan campus in Sangenja, Tokyo. Thanks to them for having us. Thank you for listening and Potsukare sama. Potsukare sama. <laughs> <laughs>